So I wanted to actually continue with the topic that we mentioned, which is the Sa'ar Sheba Isa, the idea of getting rid of the, of the yeast in the dough that we mentioned last time, the idea that getting rid of that represents the ego. The reason why I want to continue that topic is because this past week in Dabyomi, I think very often this happens, that in the Dabyomi, we find things that are related to other topics that we're discussing. And last week in the Dabyomi, we started Psachim. And in Psachim, which talks about Pesach, it actually talked again about this idea of how getting rid of the Sa'ar Sheba Isa, getting rid of the Chametz from your house, you will eradicate the influence of Esav. And then also in this week's parsha, we have the same idea again. So I figured this confluence of events, I figured let's put it together and try to make something of this idea. So first source that we have over here is this Gemara in Brachas. And the Gemara goes like this. And this is Gemara that is listing all of the different personal prayers that rabbis used to add, like the additional prayers that they did at the end of at the end of the prayer service, they would add their own stuff, you know, that was more personal. The Slavic remembers this because he did brachas together with us in Dafyomi. Probably read this with his eyes closed. Uh, so after his prayer, Rabbi Alexandri, yeah, he is actually closing his eyes. Rabbi Alexandri said the following, may it be your will, Lord our God, that you station us in a lighted corner and not in a darkened corner, right? The light and darkness here is not referring to actual light and darkness, right? It's referring to the, the metaphorical lightness and darkness. Do not let our hearts become faint, nor our eyes dim. Some say that this was the prayer that Rabbi Amnuna would recite, a different Amora. And instead, Rabbi, after Rabbi Alexandri prayed, right? Alexandri is named after Alexander the Great, parenthetically. The Gemara tells us that when Alexander the Great came through Israel, he wanted to destroy Israel and give it over to the Samaritans, who claimed that they were, that the Jews in Israel were not respecting Alexander. And then he ended up meeting with Shimon Hatzadik, who was the high priest at that time. And he was very impressed with Shimon Atadik. And he took back his decree and he actually, you know, said that they should have more independence to, you know, freedom of religion. And after that, out of thanks to Alexander, so people started naming their kids Alexander. So someone who, like, there are many Jews whose name is Alexander. That's where it comes from. It comes from that tradition of being named after people who are named after people who are named after Alexander the Great as a way of saying thank you for the fact that he gave them freedom of religion. Okay. Anyway, so we have Rabbi Alexandri praying, and we would say the following. Master of the universe, it is revealed and known before you that our will is to perform your will and what prevents us. On the one hand, the yeast in the dough, the evil inclination that is within every person. On the other hand, the subjugation to the kingdoms. May it be your will that you deliver us from both their hands, of both the evil inclination and the foreign kingdoms, so that we may return to perform the edicts of your will with a perfect heart. Okay, so now, what exactly this means, right? So it's just a, a statement right now. It's just a metaphor. So I think we're going to get into a little bit of a deeper understanding as we go through some of these other sources, both the Gemara and Sachim, and then something from two weeks ago, Parsha, two weeks ago, Torah portion, and then also from this upcoming week's Torah portion. So this is the Gemara and Sachim that we did last week in Nafiomi. And the Gemara explains that three times the word reshown, which the Gemara is saying it could sometimes mean Rishon can mean the first. It could also mean beforehand. Okay, so it can mean the first of many numbers, or it can mean the before a specific time period has begun. So there are three times the word Rishon is mentioned with regard to the festivals. Three times are in regards to Pesach. It says that on Rishon, you have to get rid of the Chametz. And we understand that means actually not Rishon as in the first day of Pesach, but rather Rishon as in before Pesach, you get rid of Chametz. 
excuse me, it also describes it twice in the context of Sukkot, it also describes Rishon. Okay, the three times the word Rishon is mentioned with regard to the festivals are necessary for that which the school of Rabbi Yishmael taught. As the school of Rabbi Yishmael taught, in reward for the three times, the word Rishon is stated with regard to the festivals observed by the Jewish people, right? They were entitled to three matters also referred to as Rishon. To eradicate the descendants of Asa, to the construction of the temple, and to the name of Messiah. Okay, now what are the three times that we're referring to? So one of the three times is the fact that you're supposed to get rid of the chametz before Pesach. The next one is that on the Rishon of Sukkot, you eat in a sukkah. Now the sukkah represents the place in which God is sort of spreading his influence out over us. So that's very much reminiscent of the construction of the temple, which is the greatest possible manifestation of God's presence in this world. The third place where it says Rishon is in regards to taking the four species in your hand. And the way the, the Marasha explains, we're about to see part of it, the Marasha about the eradicating the descendants of Asa. But before we get up to that part, I'm going to speak outside. The Marasha says like this, the four species that you take in your hand represent the entire Jewish people, from the people who know nothing about Judaism to the people who are Rishayim, the people who are actively doing wicked things to the people who are completely righteous people. It represents a unity. It represents everybody coming together. That unity is really only going to happen when Mashiach comes. Okay? So if we actually work hard on the taking of the Dalad Minim, on the four species, but really not just about the actual taking of it, which is certainly a mitzvah on a Torah level, but also on the meta message, then we can bring that merit, can bring Mashiach. Okay? Now, eradicating the descendants of Asa. Um, so the Gemara now is going to bring the, the proof to this idea that we find the word Rishon discussing Esav as well. So it says Rishon by Esav, and it says Rishon when it comes to getting rid of the Chametz. So the Gemara puts the two together. Now, at first glance, it says Rishon a lot of places in the Torah. What's the connection? Oh, this place says Rishon, that place says Rishon. Therefore, they're related. It seems like a little bit of a stretch. So what we have here is the Marasha. It was not translated to English. So I'm going to have to do that as we read. Marasha was written by Rav Shmuel Edelis in, I believe, in Poland in the 1600s. And he has two different commentaries on the Gemara. One commentary is more of a, a technical commentary in which he goes through and explains, like, what's Rashi doing here? What's Tosko doing here? Another commentary is called the Agadot, in which he goes through the Gemaras that are Agadic, right? The Gemaras that are telling us it's not a halachic. Gemara. It is not telling us how to live our lives. It is a, some sort of message that the Gemara is trying to teach. And he explains what that message is. So it says like this, Kitam hashvisa ba-pesach. The reason why we have to get rid of the chametz on Pesach, that it says on Pesach on the first day, because on this day, the Jews are redeemed from the people who were oppressing them in Egypt. And therefore, Hashem judged them the people who were, who were, who were um, oppressing the Jews in Egypt, Hashem judged them and he gave them plagues, right? We're talking about the Egyptians, right? And he caused them to end up drowning in the sea because they kept on chasing us and would not leave us alone. In the merit that we then do not get, in the merit that we get rid of our, of our chametz before Pesach, we will then become redeemed in the future from Esav, right? The Esav is going to be, he's going to continue, he's going to explain like this. We have a tradition that there are different types of oppressions, different types of exiles that the Jewish people were going to have to suffer. The first exile that we suffered 
is the exile in the hands of the Egyptians. The second one is in the hands of the Persians, right? The third one is in the hands of the, of the Babylonians. And the fourth one is the exile that we are still considered to be under because it is the exile from which we have not yet recovered. And that is the exile of the Romans. Now, the Romans are descendants of Asaph. So the merit of us getting rid of the Chametz is going to be the merit through which we merit the ultimate redemption. The same way getting rid of the Chametz that very first Pesach caused us to be redeemed from the Egyptian exile, so too getting rid of the Chametz in the future will cause us to get redeemed from the ultimate exile of the Romans. Okay? Now, what's the connection though, right? What exactly are we trying to say? What does this have to do with anything? Why is it that Asaph stands as this like the, the, the symbol of the opposite of what the Chametz does, sorry, not the opposite of what the Chametz does. Asa basically stands as sort of like the paradigm of the idea of Chametz, right? So what does that mean? So we said earlier that the Sa'or Sheba Isa, the yeast in the dough, that which causes the dough to rise, that is actually is a representation of the Yetzir Hara, of the evil inclination. So what does that mean? So I think what that means is like this. We're going to see in the next source that we're going to show you in source number four, it's actually going to be in two weeks ago, Torah portion. Okay. So just a little bit of a recap. What's happening is Yaakov steals the blessings from Esau and Esau is very angry that he stole the blessings. Okay. So that's where we're up to right now. And I think this story will help us understand why it is that Esau is the representation of something that is all about the ego and all about the evil inclination why that is so. What, what is his flaw that is a flaw that we are supposed to stay far away from? And the way that we stay far away from this flaw is through the Torah and the mitzvahs. But we have a special mitzvah once a year to help remind us how to stay away from this flaw of thinking. So what is that flaw? Esav harbored a grudge against Yaakov because of the blessing which his father had given him. And Esav said to himself, let but the mourning period of my father come and I will kill my brother Yaakov. When the words of her older son, Esav, were reported to Rivka, she sent for her younger son, Yaakov, and said to him, your brother Esav is consoling himself by planning to kill you. Now, my son, listen to me. Flee at once to Haran, to my brother Lavan. Stay with him a while until your brother's fury subsides, until your brother's anger against him subsides and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will fetch you from there. Let me not lose you both in one day. Rivka said to Isaac, I am disgusted with my life because of the Hittite women. Right? If Yaakov marries a Hittite woman like these from among the native women, what good will life be to me? So Rivka, once again, as she's been doing throughout this parsha, does not speak directly to Yitzchak about her intentions. Right? She goes in a little bit of a side, more roundabout kind of way. She does not want to tell Yitzchak that she is afraid that their older son, Esau, will actually kill Yaakov. So she makes up this side story that they need to get rid of Yaakov. Right? When she tells Yaakov, she doesn't sugarcoat it. She doesn't say, I want you to go there because I want you to marry someone from the house of Lavan. She says, I want you to go there because your brother's about to kill you. Okay, so let's see what happens now. Next, next verse, which is the next chapter. So Yitzchak sent for Yaakov and blessed him. He instructed him saying, you shall not take a wife from among the Canaanite women. Up, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Betuel, your mother's father, and take a wife there from among the daughters of Lavan, your mother's brother. May El Shaddai bless you, make you fertile and numerous so that you become an assembly of peoples. This is one of the names for God. 
May he grant the blessing of Abraham to you and your offspring that you may possess the land where you are sojourning, which God assigned to Abraham. And Isaac sent Jacob off and he went to Padan Aram to love and the son of Betuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, mother of Jacob and Asa. When Asa saw, right, and in Hebrew, Vayar, right, Vayar Asa, when Asa saw that Isaac had blessed Yaakov and sent him off to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, charging him as he blessed him, you shall not take a wife from among the Canaanite women. And that Yaakov had, and we're going to look at the Hebrew here because I don't think this translation fully conveys what the word is. In Hebrew, it says, by Yishma Yaakov el Aviv. And Yaakov listened to his father. And that Yaakov had listened to his father and mother and gone to Padan Aram. Esau realized that the Canaanite women displeased his father, Yitzchak. So Esau went to Yishmael and took a wife in addition to the wives he had, Machlach, Machlas, the daughter of Yishmael, son of Aram, sister of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. What are we trying to do with this whole Torah portion? So I'll explain. What's troublesome is like this. This story is going through this entire conversation in which Rivka comes to the recognition that Esau is threatening her son's life. So she wants to get rid of him. So we, we are told that she convinces Yaakov he should go. She then convinces Yitzchak that he should send Yaakov away. Then Yitzchak gives this bracha. And he says, okay, then he's going to leave. In verse five, we, we find that the Yaakov leaves. In verse six, we start talking about Esau's perspective. And we say Esau sees what's happening. He sees his father telling him, you cannot marry a woman from the Canaanite woman. He then sees that Yaakov listens to his father and mother, right? He doesn't just, Yaakov doesn't just see what they are saying. He actually listens to what they are saying. What does Esau do though? Esau says, oh, clearly my father doesn't want this. So Esau marries another woman, but he doesn't get rid of the original wives, right? That's not solving the issue. The way to solve the issue would be to divorce those wives. If he's really listening to what his father's saying, right? If he's not just looking at a very, very um, skin deep, superficial level, right? Then he would actually listen to the message. The father said, go marry a woman from elsewhere. But that's not why the father said, I want you to marry a woman from elsewhere. The father said, I don't want you to marry a woman from here. But Esau is very literal. He only sees what his eyes see. He doesn't assimilate things and use his intellect to try to figure out what it is that he's really saying. So he just sees things on the surface, right? And this is kind of the definition of Esau. Yaakov says to Esau, I want you to sell me your firstborn, right? Your first, the rights to the firstborn. For what? For a bowl of lentil soup. And Esau says, right now, what's in front of me? A bowl of lentil soup. You want me to think about something in the future, an abstract thing that's not here right now? The future that I'm going to have a firstborn right in the future? That's not relevant to me. I don't need that, right? This is the, the vision of someone who sees superficially. This is the vision of someone who does not think deep and think about what the true purpose in life is, okay? Now, what does that have to do with the Sa'ar Shabi'isa, the evil inclination? So I think the answer is like this. I think the answer is that we all make choices all the time about everything that we do. We're constantly making choices, right? If we were able to see the future results of all of our actions and all the future results of all of our actions, our decisions might be very different, right? We have a desire to do something right now. And is it worth it in the long run? Maybe, maybe not, but I want to do it right now, right? You know, I, I tell this to my kids all the time. There was a professor at Stanford. He actually died, I think, last year or two years ago. He did a famous experiment in the 1960s. Turned out afterwards was one of those experiments that might not actually be replicable. It was a psychology experiment. So the experiment was like this. He offered kids one marshmallow now or two marshmallows in the future, right? And these were young children. 
And the children who are able to hold back from taking a marshmallow now and wait for the two marshmallows in the future, he tracked them for many years. And the children who had the self-discipline, the self-control, that willpower, they ended up being more successful later in life. That was the experiment, famous idea. So everybody wants that marshmallow right now. It tastes good, but if you're able to see things equally, then you recognize it's actually more beneficial to have two marshmallows in the future, right? So it's a question of priorities in life. We are always making decisions in life where we are competing ideals, right? Yeah, it's more relaxing to just stay on the couch and watch another Netflix, but then you're probably gonna wake up a little bit late tomorrow and have to rush to get out the door, or you're gonna be a little bit cranky in the morning, right? Ultimately, the next day, you might regret that you watched one more episode of Netflix at night, but that doesn't really negate it, that right then you see, I want to do this right now. And you don't really see something in the future as much, right? So when we talk about the, the Sa'ar Shevet Isa, what we talk about is the evil inclination that clouds our judgment and that says, make your short-term decisions, make, sorry, make decisions primarily based on short-term benefits and do not necessarily think about the deeper meanings and think about what the end results are going to be of decisions that we make that are seemingly simple decisions at that moment. Don't think about that long-term result. Slavic? I was just going to say that I think that there's like a lot of overlap between that though and like free will. And I don't think the calculations are so simple, meaning like if they were, then I think people would make different decisions, but, and you can, you can prove the whole marshmallow thing, but it's because perhaps the person doesn't really know that the two marshmallows do they really, will, do, will they for sure get the two marshmallows? What's the, what's the added benefit of the second marshmallow versus the first? Meaning one marshmallow today is that could actually be better for that person than two marshmallows in the future if they really want a marshmallow now. Like there's a lot more in these calculations than, than I think like an oversimplified, uh, you know, example like that. And I think if we did have the, the perfect calculations, we wouldn't have free will. And I think that's where that's why we can't have these perfect um, calculations or else I think life would be a lot uh, simpler. You're 100% you're right. You're exactly right about what you're saying. I mean, ultimately, we know that what happens is uh, Adam and Chava, what do they eat? They eat from the Eitz Adas, from the fruit of knowledge. Um, um, so yeah, so, so Adam and Chava eat from the Eitz Adas. Now, the name of that fruit is called the Eitz Adas Tov Vera, right? So the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? Now we know that right after they eat from the Eitz Adas, God says to them, where are you, right? And they, they hide from him because now they're all of a sudden embarrassed. They realize they did something wrong, right? And they realize they did something wrong. From eating from that fruit, right? That's actually the fruit that should have told them what the right thing to do is, right? How could they be expected to not do the right thing before they ate, from, I'm sorry, to do the right thing before they ate from this tree that actually contains with it the ability to know what is good, right? Moreover, after eating from the tree, like you said, we're, we're confused, right? We very often have competing ideals and we don't recognize what's really good for us, right? That's the problem in life is to figure out how to reconcile competing ideals, right? That, that is the, that's what we're here for, right? So what it really means is like this, when you, we ate from the tree, what we did is we ate from the tree that mixes things together. It takes good and bad, vira, good and bad, and mixes it together. It gets us confused. You're 100% right. For us to have free will, there has to be a little, a lack of clarity in this world. It's true. If we were able to see the future and we were able to recognize the ultimate gain for doing this, we would never do anything wrong. We would be like angels, right? It would be boring. It would be a static life. We wouldn't be dynamic anymore. We would not have free will. So ultimately, we all have that evil inclination. And the evil inclination is actually there to test us. And so 
It's supposed to be there for us to be able to triumph over. We'll say something Sorry. else though. There are midrashim that imply that later on Asav will lose this lack of um, of clarity. And by the way, Asav's descendant is famously Amalek, right? right? And Amalek is who is the grandfather of Haman. The Gemara tells us who is Haman. The Gemara asks, where do we find Haman, right? The person who tries to kill the Jews. Where do we find him mentioned in the Torah? And the Gemara says, it says Hamin hazeh. Did you eat from this? fruit. So as part, aside from being like a cute like joke that the Gemara is making, what the Gemara is trying to say is that Haman and Esau and Amalek, what they represent is this lack of clarity can be stuck into the world. The idea of randomness, that is what Amalek represents. The idea of saying that nothing is, nothing is purposeful. Everything is random. There is nothing, there is no overseeing power on us. When you have that attitude in life, it is very, very difficult to make the right choices in life. Our evil inclination, that's what it's constantly pushing us to do. It's pushing us to say, it's all random. Ultimately, you make this decision right now. Eh, maybe it won't work out in the end. Maybe it will work out in the end. Ultimately, short term, this will be a gain. Now, we recognize short term, this will be a gain. And we recognize that that's foolish when it comes to watching one more episode of Netflix and waking up late the next day. It's very, very, very difficult to recognize that when you're talking about eternity, right, of a world to come. And that's part of the plan. It's baked into the plan because otherwise there wouldn't be free will. But when we talk about the evil inclination, what we're trying to refer to is the, that part of ourselves that makes short-term decisions because we are using a very instinctual part of our brains. And we're making decisions that we're not keeping everything in as a factor, right? I think that's what the Sa'ar Shabi Isa represents. I think that's why it is associated with Asab, who represents that lack of clarity, represents the randomness, represents not thinking long-term. Oh, my father said, don't marry a woman from there. He sees it, but he doesn't listen to it, right? You see something, okay, you see it, you move on. You don't take it in. When you listen to something, you take it in. You make it part of who you are. And we need to negate that influence of randomness, right? Now, obviously, the way to negate that influence is through, is through the Torah, right? Through the Torah to help guide us and tell us, you know, what is the proper attitude towards when you have competing ideals? What do you do with that, right? What is the proper way to approach different questions in life? When we listen to that Torah, then we are able to tamp down our own influence, right? And another example this week, on Sunday morning, I was asked a question by a couple of folks who were learning, and they wanted to know like this. They wanted to know that the Midrash often tells us like things about the Torah, and it just seems so random. And like, I'm reading this fellow, his name is Robert Alter, and he's a professor in Berkeley, and he wrote a commentary on the Torah, and it's beautiful, and he goes through explaining, you know, narratives, and it's a really beautiful uh, job, and it, it, it just sits so much better with this fellow who's asking a question than the, the Midrash from the, the sages. So I, I answered him like this. I said, it might be that it sits better, but we have to recognize all the influences in our lives, right, and all the different aspects of what we're doing. When we're reading about the rape of Dina, we might be thinking about something that we watched on TV that seems associated with that. We're building some association in our mind. So the story might ring true when we have the narrative that Robert Alter, who also is familiar with whatever it is that we're familiar with, and that's how he's associating it with. But we have to recognize that it's important to be able to, to see the Torah and really to see life in a very clear way, right? And to recognize the influences of the world around us, to recognize the influences of our own Yetzar Hara, our own evil inclination, 
that is constantly buffeting us and to try to stop us from making the right decisions by giving us the short-term benefit and making that look nice and big and saying the long-term, who knows if that will end up happening. And even if it does, maybe it's not even worth it, right? So that's really what the Sarshav Isa represents. That's really what Asa represents. And that's something that we're basically put into this world to try to combat that influence and to try to keep a straight head and to try to stay on that path that leads us, you know, with our eye on the prize and keep on focusing and trying to get to the end in the proper way. I think, I think that's really the idea of, of Sa'ar Shabbat Isa. Um, there is one more point, but we're not, we're not going to go into it. But at the end of the source, it just talks further about this idea because this week's Torah portion talks about Yaakov wrestling with the angel of Asa, right? Which I think also represents the similar idea. And just to finish, it says that in the end of days, right, in the, the sun comes, then he will have achieved this level of clarity. His descendants will have achieved the level of clarity and have overthrown the dominion of the, the exile of the Romans. And the way that they will have done that is presumably through having taken the, the ideas that the, that the um, Aesop represented and brought to this world, the idea of randomness, the idea of short-term benefit outweighs long-term gain. And he threw it off. And at that point, we will be called Yisrael one who wrestles with God and wins.